All right, let's uh, go ahead and get going. Um, there's nobody sitting over here. I wanted to make sure you guys were completely spread out as possible. Um, all right, so we have been doing uh, the seven churches. Uh, we've not been in a hurry. Um, we can be if you would like to, but I feel like the, um, what is being said to the seven churches is ex extensively important uh, to where we're at right now uh, in the church world as it has been throughout the church age. Um, and there are several things that I wanted to attend to before we jump into going any further. If you look at the message to the seven churches, you're going to see somewhat of a dark and bleak picture. Now, I'm not going to doctor what Scripture says in order for us to hear something that sounds pleasing to our condition. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is attending to a church that is predominantly in a state of compromise. And it is in that state during most of the church age. And if you do the math, two-sevenths is usually doing very well. That's a great deal less than half. The other five-sevenths are typically in a state of some kind of issue that's going on. Now, this reflects back to the concept that we see throughout Scripture of a remnant. That God has held and kept for himself a remnant. Okay? And as we're doing the, the study through the seven churches, we see that what is emerging from the picture that's be, that, that Jesus is painting of the condition of the churches th throughout the church age is consistently a, a remnant emerges. That the, the state of the church is constantly under, under, under siege, basically. And it's through this process that only a remnant emerges. And again, two-sevenths of the letters of the churches are positive or have a, a predominantly positive message. The rest are exhortation and correction with a, a little bit of commendation. Now, in Western Christianity, we get into the Scripture and we're looking for something to encourage us and to lift us up. And what goes on, and in, in, in we tend to go past the corrections of the Lord. And we forget that the flip side of grace is judgment. Jesus always comes as a whole coin. Right? He doesn't come... Either or. He comes in the person that he is. And the picture that we continually see through the church is that Jesus is coming in judgment. And we always equate judgment as wrong or, or as negative. Okay? It's not. It's Jesus correcting his church. And he's doing so in grace, to be sure. But we have to really listen to the, to, to the tenor of the church picture as a whole and understand that Throughout history, the church has, has struggled in the same areas throughout history that we see even going on now. And it behooves us as a small group of people in a, a building at the end of a business park in Sacramento, California, 
to hear what's being said. Because the idea of being a light set on a hill is something that the enemy wants to extinguish. Now, a couple of things that I wanted to lead into here with regards to some of this, and I want to talk to us for a minute about gospel. All right. By nature, what is the character of the gospel? And there's a lot of things you can say here. But by nature... By its very definition, if you look at what John 1 says about when Jesus came and who he was, what do we find as, as um, ontologically characteristic of the gospel? It's full of grace and truth, but it does what? And we're talking now about, and many, and let's, let's go back into what Matthew's been teaching on the idea of kingdom, uh, the kingdom of, the, uh, of, uh, of God versus the kingdom of the world. The gospel, by definition, is confrontational. All right? Light, when it enters a room, dispels darkness. It doesn't incorporate darkness. It confronts darkness, and it drives it back. The gospel is, by definition, confrontational. It con- confronts, and this is what the, the Jesus is talking about, about being a light on a city. It confronts culture. It confronts the kingdom of darkness. Jesus always confronted people where they were. He did it in loving and grace in many times, and he did it passionately and in anger in many times. When he dealt with the Pharisees, calling somebody a brood of vipers is not, does not typically conform to seven ways to gain friends, all right? But then there were times where he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going to your house today. But by his very person, Jesus was confrontational. And what ends up happening and what we see throughout the pictures that we, of the churches is that the, the churches that lost their light, the churches that lost their witness, especially in this, this X section uh, of the um, chiastic structure, these churches have learned how to dwell happily with the culture. And they've lost their confrontation. The gospel light has been reduced, so there is no light-dark confrontation, all right? And the churches that were doing well, Philadelphia and Smyrna, were the ones that were being confronted. They were, they were making such a noise that, they were being, that they, there was a persecution. And I wonder sometimes, we were tri- we've been traveling extensively over the last couple of, uh, of months, my wife and I, in the United States. And we go to places that there's churches everywhere. And the culture is not being confronted. It's just not being confronted. And the, 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 the job of the church is to confront the kingdom of darkness. It's to show itself as an option, an opposite to the kingdom of darkness and show the kingdom of light. For it to become acquiescent to or invite in 
the things of the kingdom of darkness is where the light goes away. And this is what's happening in, Thiot- in Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. So we will do what we can to show that there is grace involved and that, there is, that, that God is, is trying to restore. But these, especially the next two churches, Jesus is very confrontational. He is very, very confrontational. And we are going to have to allow for Jesus to be judge and jury often in our own lives and confront things in our lives. So that's the the picture of what's going on. And the reason that I'm saying all that is because it is easy to look at these churches and go, oh my goodness, it's just dark. It's just, ugh. And if this is the condition of the church throughout the church age, oh, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, depressing. And to me, personally, when I read and look around and see the state of the church with regards to what I see in the message of uh, Revelation, I see, yeah, there's a lot that's going on. But the good news is, is that there are two churches that are doing exactly what the Lord has called them to do. And there's no reason at all that a small group of believers in Sacramento can't be one of those two types of churches. And so um, I think that we look to that and we say, how can we do this, Lord? How can we? And what, what I hear Jesus saying is, look at the other five churches and be on your guard for what's happening with them. And the first one is the lost love. And Pergamum is tolerance. And now Thyatira is overt sinful practice. So be on your guard against these things. And, and you will be a Philadelphia or a Smyrna church. Okay? So with that, let's, let's go ahead and finish off what we're doing with Thyatira. Um, and keep in mind that in this situation, Thyatira had become come to look, uh, participate to such a degree in the world and along with the world that their light was no longer doing what it was supposed to do. They were, they were in fact, um, lo- losing their witness. Okay? Now, do we remember what we talked about last week with Thyatira? You guys, she listened. Go. Well, it might be. Testing, testing. Um, you had said um, that Pergamum, you just said mm-hmm. Pergamum's sin was, or their downfall was, they were close, and then Thyatira was even worse. Yeah. So, okay, so, so the picture that we have in the, in the structure of the three churches that, that form the X and the chiastic structures, we have Pergamum, which is tolerant. Pergamum wasn't yet engaged in sin. They were allowing people in their midst that they knew did not hold to the truth of the gospel. They were allowing the Nicolaitans in. Thyatira had allowed them in, but then given them voice. And that voice had begun to produce fruit. And that's the Jezebel spirit. Sardis is the ultimate outcome of the fruit of sin, which Paul clearly tells us the wages of sin is death. Sardis is dead, 
or very close to it. So you have a progression. Toleration, sin, death. Okay, and we see it, we see actually a progression in Thyatira as well. So uh, what we talked about was several of the first parts of the text. Jesus comes to the church with with um, the Son of God. It's the only place in all of Revelation that Jesus identifies himself as the Son of God. He does so as a direct counter to the worship of Apollos, which was their primary god in Thyatira, who was the son of Zeus. Okay? So Jesus was the Son of God. He had eyes like a flame of fire and feet, feet like burnished bronze. And we talked about both of those having to do with what? Both of those characterize what? Judgment. Eyes of fire that can dis- discern the dross from the pure. And burnished bronze, where bronze is always equated with the judgment upon sin. And Jesus comes in that capacity to Thyatira. A rather frightening image, actually. Okay? Um, and we talked about... Uh, he is the Son of God, eyes like fire, feet like burnished bronze. And he talked about, he knows your works. You actually excel in works. Thyatira actually excelled in works more than they did at first, which is somewhat kind of the opposite of Ephesus, where Jesus tells Ephesus, return to the works you did at first, right? In Thyatira, he says, hey, your works now are actually better than they were when you started, which is interesting for a church that is living like a Corinthian church, tolerating obvious sin and the teaching of it within their midst, all right? So they, they uh, excelled in gifts of faith and in love or in acts of faith and love, and they were constantly probably very engaged in, you know, doing things like helping the poor. All of these things are, are very important, right? Um, Let's see, where was I at here? Ah, John Stott says that the church of, uh, at Thyatira understood that the Christian life is a life of growth, of progress, and of development. According to George Eldon Ladd, this church had manifested admirable growth in the Christian virtues. Her love and faith had steadily increased. But he says this, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. First of all, now that we're getting into what's been going on now in Thyatira, the first thing I want you to understand is is that though uh, Jesus commends the church for all its love, faith, service, and steadfastness, there is no commendation for holiness. Okay? This is not a popular word today in churches, the word holiness. Okay, when we say holiness, we usually mean what? I'm sorry? Set aside. Set aside. That's... Anybody else? Holiness, what do you think of? Purity. Purity, all right. Purity goes along with being set aside. You are set aside because you're pure. When you become profane, you are, 
the, the scripture says you are used for common purposes at that point. But when you are a vessel that is holy, set apart to the Lord, you are set apart unto his services. So the holiness and the set apart, or the purity and the set apartness go together. Okay? So even though the church at Thyatira had done all these wonderful works, their holiness, their set apartness, their, their work as a vessel for God, or let's use the term lampstand, had become removed from being set apart for the service unto God into common work because they had lost their holiness. Okay? Uh, although there seems to be... Um, oh, we already talked about this. Uh, so there is, there's a lot of similarities between Pergamum and Thyatira. The actual issue is tolerance versus participation. And as we talked about this, uh, I want to remind you of the situation that was going on in Thyatira. Thyatira was a city of uh, guilds, of trade guilds. Many, many commentators say there was up to 10 trade guilds in Thyatira. And each one of them had a particular deity that they worshipped, a small guardian deity that each one of the guilds worshipped. Because we know that Roman and Greek mythology had a had a plethora of gods. And so each one subscribed to its own deity. Now, in order to be a member or participate in the trade of that guild, you had to participate in the activities of its uh, devotion to that god or goddess. And what that would mean is you were invited to the feasts, you were to participate in the after-events, um, and, and that usually included various hedonistic practices. Um, and as a Christian, and if you didn't go to these, then you were ostracized, usually expelled from the guild, which meant that you couldn't earn a living. All right? Now, this posed, obviously, a, a tough position for the Christians in Thyatira. Do they give up their livelihood... Or do they remain set apart? That's a tough question. And today in current many churches, this has been, we've, we've actually created theologies. But I would suggest to you that what Jesus is pointing out in Thyatira is one of these theologies. Because what it appears that Jezebel taught was, with these Christians that were having an issue with what, do I do this or do I do that, Jezebel came along and said, look, I have the answer to this. In order for you to be a real effective witness, you actually need to participate in the things of the occult, in the things of the world, in the things of the kingdom of darkness, in order that you know it better and become well acquainted with it. And by doing so, you can actually shine light better in it. Okay, that's almost exclusively held among most commentators. That that was probably what was being taught. Okay? So she was giving them a, a middle ground. She was graying the distinction. She was saying, you can be a Christian and still participate in all of this stuff. As a matter of fact, you can become a better Christian by participating in this kind of stuff. So she had bridged the gap, so to speak. So that was what was going on there. Um... As we said, Jezebel was certainly a local expression of the harlot that we see later on in chapter 17. 
And now we get into the idea of the scripture says that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. Tolerance, that's a, that's a buzzword today, right? Tolerance. What do we mean by tolerance? What do we mean by, by that in Christian circles? Well, let's first of all do it this way. What does the, what does the world mean by tolerance? Accepting. Now, let's, let's dig down deeper into that word. What do we mean by accepting? Okay, so what, how does that impact you as a Christian? Oh, yeah, forgot about that. It would take, as a Christian, it would take away our voice to judge or condemn those practices that are unlawful. Okay, right. So in the world right now, this is a real buzzword, tolerance, right? So we embrace now various people groups or various identity groups, right? I identify as this. I feel like I'm that. Um, and that usually has to do with... Uh, what I would call gender dysphoria and homosexuality and uh, women who are confronted with the choice of whether or not to have a, a child out of wedlock or abort it. Um, and, but, but even more so goes down to do I really, really covenant? Let's even go to marriage. Is my covenant with my wife as strong as it needs to be? And we saw Jesus, when he was asked about, hey, you know, uh, about divorce, he said, no, 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 we, Moses was given the certificate of divorce. Why? Because your hard heart. But it was not ever to be such. And yet we have people that, in, in Christian circles, that, well, I just lost a feeling. And so we tolerate this stuff. And it becomes... Something that works its way in. So what happens is the world preaches tolerance. And it says anything that says that this is wrong is now what? What's the buzzword? Hate speech. Right? I mean, we've got Google and Yahoo and all these platforms trying to abolish hate speech. And so what this ends up happening is, is that it works its way into the church. It it slowly works its way into the church, and we become tolerant of these things. We change our traditional stances on many of these, uh, many of these platforms. We allow slight variations. And then pretty soon, when we start to do that, we find that it starts to infiltrate our local churches. And then there's the next step of saying, of welcoming, condoning, we love you just as you are. Jesus is, you know, if he wants you to change, he'll, he'll bring about the change. And then pretty soon, we create a theology that embraces it. Right? Then we have people in our midst that are participating in it. And then we have, then we're forced to celebrate it, right? And they're trying to pass laws that say that we had to. What was this month? Gay, Gay Pride Month. So... You know, and so it's, it's just a slow deterioration. And that's why Jesus is coming to these churches saying, look, you must maintain your standards. 
You cannot gray any of these areas. There cannot be any give on any of these points. For those that keep their garment pure, I will give. All right? It's, it's not those that sometimes do a good job. It's not that those that have a half of a theology right. It's those that are pure and right and holy and have maintained themselves. Not sinlessly. I'm not saying that. We all fall. We all have a problem. But it's get up. Keep going. Understand. And time and again, Jesus comes to the church and says, look, here's what's going on with you. And he uses a word, and he does so in grace, and he says, repent. Repent, turn from, move away. I'm giving you an option. Wash your garments. Use the money to buy pure things. Do what is necessary. Buy sad for your eyes. Reclothe yourself in my purity. Set this stuff aside. Become my bride. Guys, think of this. If you, had a, if you were getting, getting ready to get married, or those of you that are married, Think about this. What would it have been like if you would have found out like a day before that your bride on, on, at her bachelorette party had, had relations with a couple of guys at a, at a strip club? Oh, it's only one night. I'm not really like that. She's not really like that. You'd probably think twice. Right? And yet, in many instances, the bride of Christ participates in that kind of stuff. And, and, and we, we have to go back to the analogy because time and again, Jesus calls us his bride. We are his bride. And as a bride, resplendent in purity and in white garments, we must stand. We must stand against these things that are crowding in on the church. And so this is Jesus' message. And what, what was going on at Thyatira was that a Jezebel, a, a prophetess, had set herself up. And she was teaching because probably they had gone through the same thing Pergamum had gone through. Where they began to tolerate certain things. Which gave place to the Jezebel's platform. And she began to teach these things. And the church began to accept her teaching because she taught as one that had authority and because they were already compromised with their tolerance to begin with. So this is what was going on there. So let's, and Jesus actually says this. He says, you tolerate this woman Jezebel. So this was a primary problem in Thyatira. They tolerated what they knew about and what they knew to be unrighteousness. Okay, they recognized, based on the language that is being said here, they recognized that this woman, this woman had apparently already been confronted. So they knew that there was issue with this person. And yet they continued in their tolerance. They recognized her evil character and teaching, but in their toleration probably considered by themselves to be the... Uh, considered by themselves to be the correct expression of their love, they refused to deal with her. So they probably equated their tolerance with godly love. Have you heard that before? They probably said, oh, for me to be a right Christian, I've got to, I can't confront her. I've got to show her welcome. I've got to, you know, I need to be inclusive here. 
So instead of confronting her, as Jesus tells the Pergamums, now remember what he said about, to the Pergamums. He said, confront the Nicolaitans or I will. Right? Isn't that what he says? Repent of what's going on in Pergamum or I will come and deal with them with the, the, word, the sword of my mouth. That's what Jesus says. So the idea there means in repent, he's speaking to the believers. He's saying, repent. Confront this Nicolaitan issue. Drive it out or cause them themselves to repent. Either you take care of it in-house or I will. Okay? Now, he gives Pergamum a chance. We're going about, about to see that in Thyatira. That chance is gone. Jesus is coming to pass judgment on Jezebel. The believers will have time to repent still. But the time for Jezebel to repent is now over. And we go back to Pergamum and we see that there is a time for repentance. And then there is a time for God to come and swiftly move in his judgment. Now, we know by stories like Manassas and things like that, that there's always time for people to repent. God is gracious. He's merciful. His arms are wide open. He will not tolerate sin, and he will come and judge it. But how many of you realize that Manassas, who was Manassas? I always point to this because it just blows my mind. Who was Manassas? Anybody know off the top of your head? Considered to be the worst king in 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 the history of Israel, the worst. They said during his reign, the blood of the innocents flowed in the streets up to the ankles. He was horrific. He was carried away to captivity. And Chronicles, I believe, tells us that in his jail cell, cries out to God, and God restored him. That is the grace and the mercy of our God. But please understand that in our lives, there comes a time when judgment, when we have been given time to repent, time and time again, we presume upon this as if it will always continue on that way. Jesus is not that kind of God. He gives us time to repent, but there is a time, and we'll see this in Smyrna, where, or, or yeah, in Sardis, where he comes, How? Like a thief at an hour you think not. So it's a, it, it's a sobering thing for us. God gives us. He is a merciful, gracious God. But there comes a time where judgment steps in. And in Thyatira, that time is right now. In Pergamum, they still had time. Thyatira, that's gone. All right? Um, but in, in Thyatira, we have the exact opposite that we had in Ephesus. In Ephesus, they tested the false apostles and they rejected them. So they tested anybody who came among them. And they held it up to Scripture. I would, lie, I would say this, that one of the things I think we do very well in this local expression is we test spirits very well. You guys have to know that we don't test within our own ranks just to be picky we do so because we take the notion or the take the command to judge the spirits and rightly understand and make sure it conforms to the word of god very seriously and which were the ephesians were commended for because we don't want 
things to creep into our midst. We don't want false teaching in among us. We don't want things that can, can spring forth into sin and eventually lead to the death of the witness of this local body. We don't want those things. It's not that we're waiting for people to make a mistake. Go on, try to give a prophetic word. Go on, I dare you. No, it's not that at all. We're, it's because we take the idea and the, and the commendation to Ephesus very seriously. Because we see churches like Thyatira all around us. We don't want that. Okay? So we try to do what the church at Ephesus did. But however, uh, the bad spot about that is that you can become unloving, critical, harsh. And I've had to, I have to constantly do that. My wife reminds me of that all the time. You know, because she's, she's very gracious. She's very compassionate. And I tend to fall into this place where I could be very exalted. Exhortive, uh, what's the word? Yeah. Yeah, exhortive. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it's, it's in the ether now, it's a word. All right. So, so what we have, so like I said, what we have is we have a false prophetess. Now, what was she teaching? What, what, what was she teaching? Because it's a common theme. And my wife and I were talking about this yesterday. So my wife and I were at a street fair in a little place called Etna yesterday. And we were talking, there was a vendor, and I'm going to give a personal story about this. Um, there, was a, there was a street vendor that was out there, and she was dressing mannequins. And she was, you know, and I don't, I'm not trying to stereotype anybody, okay? So just, but, but when you see people, if you are discerning at all, you can see the spirit under which they operate. Tatted. Funky haircut, weird hat, you know, sundress, um, piercings all on her face, and, and her language was eye-opening. Yes, she was dressing a mannequin, and there was a lady that was next to her, and she was trying to get a pole to hold the mannequin up, and they were talking about the woman having her hand up another woman's dress. And uh, um, and, and, and this wasn't the first time and things like that. I for, completely forgot where I was going with this. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, and so the spirit, so my, my re immediate reaction is like, ah! You know, just to, con just, just to be aghast by it. But I began to realize, and the Lord began to work in me, and he, was, he began to talk to me about the fact that this is the condition of the world. She is the exact product of what the enemy is doing to the world. And instead of being aghast and repulsed by her, I began to allow God to break my heart for what was going on in her life and realize, what else is she going to do? How else is she going to respond? The church in America has lost its light. There's nothing that tells her that this is not okay. She's being duped by the world system that's saying this is perfectly normal, why would she not? And during the prayer meeting last week, I prayed that very thing for us as a body, that our heart would begin to break. 
as we see the effects of what the enemy is, is, is doing to, to a lost world and take the, the onus off of the individual and put it where, where it's at. It's the kingdom of darkness having its way with God's creation. And we have to somehow set a barrier, build a wall, declare the goodness, confront that, drive it back. Not, conf- not exhort the individual, but confront the individual. There is a different way. I had this picture. I had this picture that we talk about being under the grace of Jesus. And there's all of us, you know, like this. And I'm way off topic, but I don't really care. All these people under, under grace, right? And there's another umbrella over here, and it's the world system. And, and, and we were all over here one time, and this is just fully populated with people. And our job is not to figure out how to move the grace cloud over the world cloud. Our job is to reach out, grab these people, and bring them under the grace cloud. Take them out of that and move them over here. And a lot of times we yell from over here saying, hey, you need to look like us. They can't. They're not, under the gra- they're not under God's grace. They can't. We have to go and confront them. We have to stand, not, not acquiesce and go into the world system and look like the world. We have to stand in the, under the grace cloud and proclaim the good news of the gospel. Say, look, there's a different way. Look, what you're hearing from this world system is wrong. Look, look at the light. Come into the light. There's freedom in the light. There's a line by an old guy named Bob Bennett who was one of my favorite writers, and he wrote this about, he wrote a song called Man of the Tombs. And if you ever have a chance to listen to it, it'll blow you away. I'll tell you, it'll blow you away. And one of the things that he says is the man of the tombs mistaked his freedom for being free. And we live in a space where the world is telling people this is freedom, and they're in such bondage. And so... I know I went way off topic here, but this is what we have to be. This is what Jesus is calling the church to. And when we move from this place over into the world, like Thyatira, like Pergamum, we lose the distinctiveness. We lose the light. We lose the witness, which is the entire story of the lampstands. Have you lost your witness? Have you become so much like this that there's no distinction to you. Think about this as you go through your week this week. Am I distinct? Do I live distinctively? Do I live different? Do I think different? Do I speak different? Do I concern myself with the things that are different? Do I live in a gospel representation? Or do I only do that when I go to church and then do whatever the world tells me to during the week? Those are hard questions, but we're coming fast to a place where that's going to be very, very important. All right. Um, The issue in Thyatira was one that plagues so many human beings, and we're going to talk about why in a minute, but it is this word here, sexual sin. Now, this is a big deal. Why? Why is this so attacked by the enemy. Why is this such an issue? Anybody care to venture a guess? Why do you think that this is one of the biggest doors that the enemy hits a human being with? 
yeah, if you're going to (laughs) preach. The the first thing I thought of is that Jesus makes a distinction against sexual sin because it's you're sinning against your own body. Okay, what does that mean? Maybe you're working toward destroying what God's created. Yes, that is true. I'm not I'm not saying that you're not right, but I think in a lot of times in Christian circles we say something like that. Well, you're sinning against your own body. Okay, what does that mean? Aren't you sinning against your own body when you smoke cigarette or? Take drugs? Yeah, but the concept of sexual sin is that it's a gen it's an identity. There you go. So you are you are really playing with, you know, fire in the fact that your identity is no longer, you know, found in Christ. Your identity is found in because there, you know, there's a connection, you know, a emotional, physical, spiritual connection in any sort of sexual act. That's right. Okay, so the first thing I want to point out is that sexual sin and the reason for the, for the, the Lord, uh, for the enemy to have such a leeway into this area of our lives is because it's ontologically how we're designed. It is at the core of who we are. That's why there is such momentum behind the LGBTQ movement and transgenderism because it strikes at the very ontological fabric of who human beings are. Jesus created men and women at the, in the garden. That is the distinction. It is a boundary. There was a teaching my wife read me the other day, which I thought was a little bit on the scary side. The overwhelming part of it was right in that there needs to be unity. But what he said was, is that Jesus is both male and female. He's, he's not specifically male. And that he created Adam as both male and female. And when he put Adam to sleep, he took out the womb and created... I know, but this is the kind of stuff, because of what's going on in our culture, that works itself into the church. We try to figure out how to, how to take our witness from the grace area over here, and, and, and what's our distinctiveness, and we try to go over here to the world system, and we try to take what seems to be working over here and drag it up over here. And we try to create a theology that says that dragging is okay. We can't be party to those kind of things. And what Rick said is very true. That's weird. Jesus calls himself son. God calls himself father. He came as a man. He's always identified himself in masculine terms. You can call that sexist, but you're not calling me sexist. You're calling God himself a sexist. And I would venture to say that that does not exist in the character of God. Okay? That's the way it's made. So anyway, sexual sin is ontological. Uh, is, it strikes at the very ontological fabric of who we are as human beings. Now, there's another reason why the act of sexuality is so important. And there's another word that I'm looking for. Can anybody think of it? Why is it so important? Grace. Covenant. The word is covenant. All right, I don't, there's no children here, so I'm just going to speak like I'm. What happens when a man and woman know each other biblically? What does Scripture say of them? They become one. This is a covenantal expression. 
The interaction between a man and woman under the covenant of marriage makes them one and solidifies the covenant. Throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, Israel, because of its sin, is accused of what? Adultery. Yeah, but the two basically go hand in hand, which is where we're going to go with this. So the notion of sexual intimacy directly reflects a spiritual truth wherein the covenant of man and woman being in sexual intimacy through covenantal marriage reflects what it is to be in covenant with Christ. There is an intimacy that, that there, is, there is an idea of the union of, of us with Christ Jesus that is only reflected in that union between man and woman. And if Satan can get in there and start messing around with this, he strikes at the very core of who you are from the very beginning of time and the very core of your covenant relationship with who Jesus is. And what this ends up, sexual sin is always equated throughout, well, predominantly equated. I can't say always because I don't know every passage. But I can say predominantly equated with what term, and Rick just said it, idolatry. It is the idolizing of pleasure, of yourself, of the flesh. It is to stand before pagan gods and give yourself to it. That's what engaging in sexual misconduct is. And that's why it's, when you say it's a sin against ourselves, this, this strikes at the very core of the fabric of you as a person because when you say it's a sin against yourself, yeah, it's a sin against your very fabric of who you are. It violates the very core of your being. It affects the very covenant relationship that you have vertically because it affects your covenant relationship horizontally. And when you participate in sexual sin outside of covenant, that's exactly what the Hebrews were doing. They were embracing something for the idea of the experience without the covenantal relationship. And this is reserved for covenant. This is reserved for covenant relationship. That's why we as a church say, do not engage in sexual misconduct until you are... And sexual, sexual misconduct. Do not engage in sex until you have established the covenant. It's not because it's a rule. It's because that's what it's for. It's to establish, solidify, and bring, make holy the covenant that you've already taken. And to do so outside of the covenant with Jesus with the covenant with your wife and the covenant horizontally is to join yourselves. Listen to the language. To join yourself with pagan idols. You join yourself to them. Okay? This is what was going on in Thyatira. That's heavy stuff. That's heavy stuff. But this is the steam. This is the, the push. This is the engine that's behind all the stuff that we're seeing in culture. Because 
You see people screaming about da-da-da-da-da. And you know what? What we say is, and this is where it scares me, so what we say in the church is, oh, well, science tells us you're born this way. This, is, this reason right here is why I throw up a red flare with that whenever I hear it. Because of the ontological condition by which God created us. You're saying that God ontologically made you something that's contrary to what we see in the garden. I can't go there. That doesn't work for me. Does that make sense? Any questions on any of that? I mean, it's a big, broad brush brush topic, but I want to make sure that we all understand this. This strikes at the very core of your personhood. God created you male and female. He didn't make a mistake. He didn't put the wrong gender into a body. He didn't do any of that stuff. We say you're born homosexual, but do we say you're born an adulterer? Have you ever heard somebody say, oh, he was born a liar? Or he was, he was born a thief? We don't, we don't ontologically identify people with those kind of sins. We do with sexual sins. Because none of us are ontologically thieves by nature of who we are. We're all born sinful, and that sin nature plays itself out in various ways. It's only sexual sin that we try to create an ontological identity out of because it strikes at the very core, strikes at the very core of Genesis 1 and God's intended purpose. It strikes at the very, I can't say that enough. This will ruin the witness of the church. This will ruin the witness of the church. Because it's full-blown, unabashed idolatry. That's what's going on in Thyatira. So, any, any, any question about that? Any comment? That's a heavy, I get it. I, I know, but it has to be taught. It has to be taught. Young people need to hear this. Uh, go ahead and ask a question there. Okay, it has to be taught. I grant you that, but we have to brace ourselves for what's coming our way, which would which it would be would be illegal to teach that. Wow. And that's coming our way. So. That looks just like some of the churches. Exactly. And you know what? We we think that if that happens to us, oh my goodness, how will we bear up? What happens if Rick or Dean get thrown in jail for standing in the platform in a little town in Sacramento and saying, this is wrong to engage in this kind of practice, and somebody shows up at our doorstep because it's now hate speech and it's illegal? Are we willing to pay the price? I mean, we, we have a hard time walking away from a job that turns into an idol because we, we determine that we have to make a certain amount of money in order to be blessed by God, right? And if we can't walk away from a job, how are we going to walk away from, these, from our life? How are we going to do this? And one of the things that we'll see when we get to Smyrna is, is because there is no persecution, because there is no confrontation of the church, the church just acquiesces and fades into death, 
It looks exactly like the world system. Asardis, yeah. Okay, so we have to be, we have to be, um, we have to be prepared for this kind of stuff. All right, so um, we already talked about all that. Uh, now, here's other issues that we have with Jezebel. Jezebel was allowed to speak these kind of things. But I wanted to point out two things. Number one, Jezebel was a woman. She was a prophetess, yes? All right, what's the first issue here? What does Paul say? So their first issue was they give place in contrary to Pauline theology to a woman to get up and teach with authority over the church. That's their first, one of their first big issues. The second issue is, is that the Jezebel spirit often uses what means. And women do this all the time in, in, the, in the world. They manipulate. They manipulate physically. Yeah, they do. You're right, they do. But it, we're, we're talking about Jezebel. <laughs> and, and we see it even in marriage, where the women hold physical interaction back in order to get their way. Or if you do this for me, I will light you up later. Now, I know that's crude, but... happens so there's a bunch of things that are associated with the spirit of Jezebel in this church physical manipulation probably the fact that she's allowed to teach violates Pauline instruction clearly and because they did these things and because she probably manipulated her way into teaching she's teaching a heretical doctrine to participate with pagans in a sinful uh, in, in a sexual way, or pagan practice, which was sexual in nature. All right. Now, I got to probably stop. But there's, two th- there's a couple things that we want to talk about here. Jezebel is judged. She's thrown on a sickbed. Those of, that participated with her uh, are thrown into tribulation, and her children are killed. Rick talked about an issue last week where this kind of thing goes on. We don't ever like to talk about this. God's a gracious God. He's merciful. He would never do these kind of things. You tell that to Ananias and Sapphira when you get to heaven. I'm just telling you. But what we see here is a picture of this. We see another cascade. Jezebel's sickness. Her followers, tribulation, which is pain, followed by death. So you have, again, another cascade. You have Jezebel, the author of sin, who, the author of what's going on there, who is made sick. That sickness turns into pain through tribulation and ultimately leads, ultimately leads to death. So you have another progressive issue going on at Thyatira as well, okay? We're going to conclude next week real briefly on, on uh, what happens to those who, acquie- uh, those who persevere to the end, and then we're going to jump into an uh, overview of uh, Sardis. Uh, Sardis is a very interesting town, and we'll cover a lot about their history and their position 
where they were and what was going on with them. Okay, any questions on any of that? Okay, good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that your spirit would dwell within us, that we would take to heart the things that you're saying in, in, in your word, that we would understand that you are indeed a loving and kind God, but a holy and righteous God who comes to us with both, not just one, but he comes to us in both, in the fullness of who he is, righteous and loving judge. And we ask, Father, that we, as a small group in Sacramento, would be a brilliant light, that you would bring us to that place, Father, where we would shine bright, that we would do the things that are according and dear to your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.